Welcome to Craftlit, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from where the Delaware River meets the Old York Road, New Hope, Pennsylvania. Episode 512, Into the Scuppers. This episode of Craftlit is brought to you by its listeners. Many thanks and much gratefulness to all of the listeners who have gone over to patreon.com slash craftlet and pledged their support to the show. We couldn't do it without you. Thank you. Well, hello. How are you? I am well. I have some news for you. If you are at all interested in the art of sailing and the history of sailing and information about ships and sailing ships, my mom took a sailing class this summer, which is so cool. And she has a book that the people who taught the class told her to get called The Complete Sailor, Learning the Art of Sailing by David Seidman, S-E-I-D-M-A-N. And she was showing me pictures from the book and all the information that I probably needed about six episodes ago was in that book. So if you have found yourself fascinated by all things saily, that's a possibility. You should check it out. In other news, I know some of you have been watching the progress on Inktober over on Instagram. It's nice to see you guys show up there. As you might imagine, I have not had a whole lot of extra time to do anything, even remotely like responding to comments or, or things like that. But I have seen them and I really appreciate them. It's been a little busy at work and at home lately, but that's not news, is it? So we won't dwell on that, but we will dwell on the lovely, lovely fall weather that we have been having here. It makes everything so much easier to deal with when it's nice and dry outside and cool at night and the leaves are just starting to turn, which is pretty late, but that's also not a surprise since it's been so warm up until so recently. So there's that. I have a couple of voicemails for you, both interesting in different ways. The first comes from Diane, who has an awesome Parmesan cheese story. So here's Diane. Hi, Heather. Diane from Boise, Idaho. Uh, just calling in to give you one little thought I had about Parmesan cheese. I am suspecting that Robert Louis Stevenson definitely knew about Parmesan cheese. And one of my favorite little Parmesan cheese anecdotes is that the diarist, 17th century diarist Samuel Pepys wrote about the Great Fire of London when that occurred. I think was that 1666, late 17th century. And he talked about how when the fire was coming, People in his area were burying their valuables in their yards to protect them from the fire uh, before they fled. And what Samuel Pepys chose to bury to protect it was a wheel of Parmesan cheese. It was probably the most valuable thing he owned, but, you know, can you really blame him for wanting to make sure he could take care of his cheese? So I would suspect that it had that kind of role around this time, around the time that the book was set, um, a serious luxury trade item for wealthy people that they would have protected. So the fact that the squire is willing to give this Parmesan cheese to a marooned man 
says something about his willingness to deprive himself of a delicious food, but also to give up something that's pretty valuable and hard to replace. So just a thought, still enjoying the book. It's been one of my favorites since I was a kid. And um, have a good day. Bye. So, yeah. And I was thinking about it, too. Parmesan cheese being one that doesn't go bad quickly and is salty would have provided some very welcome punch to what might have otherwise been some fairly bland food. So that makes a lot of sense. But then, of course, talking about cheese and wheels of cheese and doing interesting and odd things with wheels of cheese makes me think of Three Men in a Boat, which has perhaps the funniest riff on cheese ever. (laughs) We were just talking about that book not too long ago. What a hoot. And in fact, if you didn't listen to it back back in the day when I first did it as a premium book, I have linked out to the downloadable version over at Gumroad. So, so if you're interested in laughing your tuchus off, highly, highly recommend Three Men in a Boat to say nothing of the dog. So that was Diane's Parmesan cheese. Now, Tara proves that she and I have almost exactly identical ways that our brains remember things. Listen to Tara. Hi, Heather. Tara Worcester. It is a delightfully breezy 70-degree day here in Middle Tennessee, and I am enjoying the latest chapters of Treasure Island. Something you talked about before the chapters start was taking French leave. The only real, I guess, connotation I've heard of this was from the Divine Secrets of the Yaya Sisterhood, talking about how one of the women's mother or one of the love interest's mother committed suicide. And the way that Maggie Smith phrases it is, and the good French lady took her leave by committing suicide because she was so distraught over the loss of her son, her oldest son. And that is probably the only time I can think of exactly where I've heard it before. I can't remember what book it was, but I want to say it was the one that Brenda Dane read for us. It mentions an adipose laugh or an adipose chuckle. It was mentioned in that book as well because with the way Brenda Dane says it, it is with the eyebrow and that sass she has that everyone loves so much. And I think it was mentioned in that book. But other than those two moments, I can't think of another book we've heard it in that I've listened to more than once. I hope you're having a great day. I hope the weather is being kind. And I can't wait to finish these chapters of the book. And a monarch butterfly just flew past my nose. I hope you're having a great day, Heather. I'll talk to you later. Bye. It is so gratifying to hear somebody else's brain go down the odd channels that mine goes down all the time. Tara is Absolutely correct. I went and I looked, and Edith Wharton's Age of Innocence, which we've done on this podcast and which Brenda Dade did read so beautifully, does in fact have an adipose chuckle and a reference to taking French leave, both in the same chapter, chapter 17 of the book. Not too far into it. It's a long one. So well done, Tara, pulling that one out of thin air and having as weird a memory as I do. (laughs) I can totally see why you remembered it, though, because I have a feeling that's where I didn't remember it connected to that book, 
But I knew I had heard that phrase before, and it would make perfect sense if it was Age of Innocence, because I did listen to that a whole bunch as well. So thanks for that. I don't know if you've been watching The Handmaid's Tale on, what is it, Netflix? Hulu? Netflix. Netflix, I think. We just finished watching the end of, what is this, the third season? Second season? Third se- I think it's the end of the third season. Bradley Whitford, Josh Lyman, for you ladies of a certain age. Bradley Whitford is really a curious character. He's become a marvelous character actor just in general. But the character that he plays is an odd one in Handmaid's Tale for a lot of different reasons. But he does something in the very last episode of this final, or not final season as in the show is over, but final season as in it's the one that they've done so far, the last one they've done so far. He has to keep a whole mess load of little kids calm and quiet at nighttime. And we didn't know in advance that he was going to have to do this. But when we tune back in to his plot line and see all these children surrounding him with rapt attention, it didn't take very long before my ears pricked up and I said, oh my God, he is reading Treasure Island to these children. And he was. He was actually reading the part where they have just arrived at Treasure Island and Jim is describing the landscape and the, the kind of architecture of the island, what's tallest, what's widest, what colors you see, what the island itself actually and in fact looks like. Which means he'd been reading for several hours at that point. And I just thought it was brilliant because this moment is all about freedom and escape and being able to see that freedom and escape on the horizon. And that part of Treasure Island was just genius because, of course, it's cold outside. It seems to always be cold outside in Gilead. It's cold outside. It's snowy. They are inside reading by candlelight. And what better book could they have chosen than than to provide us with our zeitgeisty moment for this book and read Treasure Island? Ah, so good. Andrew and I both had ridiculously broad grins on our faces when I realized that that's what he was doing. So fun. (sighs) And we're on another really good sailing chapter, actually, or a set of chapters. We're going to do 24, 25, and 26 today. And let's see, when last we left our gym, he was in the coracle and not too thrilled to be in the coracle alone and drifting. So we pick up with him there. We do not leave his side for these three chapters. He does several things in this chapter that my jaw dropped and I thought, okay, we knew he was basically a clever kid. You know, he he worked with his mom. He had to handle money and responsibility and all of that stuff. Sure, fine. I'm trying to remember if we've really seen him be a scientist, think like a scientist before. And I think we've had little, little hints, you know, little moments when he's been particularly observant or particularly clever. It kind of all comes into play in these three chapters. And surprisingly, his ability to do that, to think like a scientist, 
provides, I think, some of the best suspense and adventure excitement that we have had so far in the book. It might just be me, but I'm loving it. So, Jim, not a dumb little boy. Some weird language <laughs> comes up in this chapter, though. These chapters. The first one is, if you have drunk a Jill, first off, it is spelled G-I-L-L, like gill, but it's a Jill. It is another word for about a quarter of a pint. And I actually got milliliter <laughs> measurements for those of you who are feeling particular. In the U.S., it would be somewhere around four ounces or 118 milliliters. In the U.K., around 142 milliliters. Yeah, I'm just not even going to go into that. So drinking a Jill is drinking about a quarter pint. Uh, you will hear that they got the canvas on her. The her in question is the ship. Ships are often female. And getting the canvas on her means getting the sails up, that they were able to raise the sails. It's not that confusing a line necessarily. It's that it comes in a section where there's a whole lot of stuff happening. And uh, some of it was coming kind of fast and furious. And it's fairly detailed information. So I didn't want anybody stumbling over that. The second thing that I stumbled over was subaltern, S-U-B-A-L-T-E-R-N. It looks like subaltern, but it can be pronounced subaltern or subaltern, and it is an under officer, not the captain and not really necessarily the second in command, but a relatively important person underneath the very important person. I wanted to remind you that guns at this time had to be muzzle-loaded, and it, it was a thing to do to have to load these suckers. So I actually found a YouTube video showing how to load a pistol from roughly the same time period. And it's a, it's a much longer video. There's a lot of information about Harper's Ferry and this particular pistol and how it works and all that. I actually got the video to start at the minute marker where you start to see the guy loading the gun. So if you want to see how to prime a pistol in order to fire it, if you were living back in 1750, you have a video there. I also have a link to a picture of a scupper. Now, the scuppers in question are, of course, on a wooden tall mast sailing ship. The scupper that I have a picture of is from a modern ship, but you'll get the idea because these are the drains that are built into the decks that allow water to get off the deck instead of running down into the bilge and becoming disgusting and gross bilge water. So scuppers are really important. Otherwise, your boat ankle float. That also means that going into the scuppers would mean going out through the drain or into a tight, narrow place that probably wouldn't be very pleasant, and then out through a drain. All right, I think that's everything. <sighs> Good chapters today. There is a really, uh, I don't want to say it's complex piece of writing at, towards the beginning uh, in chapter 24, but I do want to say this. I know that many of us listen to podcasts while we're doing lots of other things, and I am no different. Chapter 24 has a chunk of writing that I think is so skillful 
in its description of an action that most of us have never seen and will never see. But if you pause and just listen, like, I mean, really seriously, like close your eyes and listen or get out a piece of paper and try and sketch it, much like Flatland required us to do every once in a while. Wow, I think, I think you'll see what I mean. It's a really amazingly detailed, but thoroughly understandable chunk of writing. Stevenson was just, he's the man. The more we read of his books, the more I love the man. (sighs) All right. So I've warned you. Listen closely. Chapter 24, Jim's description. And uh, I'll catch you on the flip side. Here we go with chapters 24, 25, and 26 of Treasure Island by Robert Louis Stevenson. Chapter 24 The Cruise of the Coracle It was broad day when I awoke and found myself tossing at the southwest end of Treasure Island. The sun was up, but was still hid from me behind the great bulk of the spyglass, which on this side descended almost to the sea in formidable cliffs. Hall Bowline Head and Mizzenmast Hill were at my elbow, the hill bare and dark, the head bound with cliffs, forty or fifty feet high, and fringed with great masses of fallen rock. I was scarcely a quarter of a mile to seaward, and it was my first thought to paddle in and land. That notion was soon given over. Among the fallen rocks the breakers spouted and bellowed, loud reverberations, heavy sprays flying and falling succeeded one another from second to second, and I saw myself, if I ventured nearer, dashed to death upon the rough shore, or spending my strength in vain to scale the beetling crags. Nor was that all, for crawling together on flat tables of rock, or letting themselves drop into the sea with loud reports, I beheld huge slimy monsters, soft snails, as it were, of incredible bigness, two or three score of them together, making the rocks to echo with their barkings. I have understood since that they were sea-lions, and entirely harmless, but the look of them added to the difficulty of the shore and the high running of the surf, and was more than enough to disgust me of that landing-place. I felt willing rather to starve at sea than to confront such perils. In the meantime I had a better chance, as I supposed, before me. North of Hall Bolin Head the land runs in a long way leaving at low tide a long stretch of yellow sand. To the north of that again there comes another cape, Cape of the Woods, as it was marked upon the chart, buried in tall green pines which descended to the margin of the sea. I remembered what Silver had said about the current that sets northward along the whole west coast of Treasure Island, and seeing from my position that I was already under its influence, I preferred to leave Hall Bolin Head behind me and reserve my strength for an attempt to land upon the kindlier-looking Cape of the Woods. There was a great smooth swell upon the sea the wind blowing steadily and gentle from the south, there was no contrariety between that and the current, and the billows rose and fell unbroken. 
Had it been otherwise, I must long ago have perished, but, as it was, it is surprising how easily and securely my little and light boat could ride. Often, as I lay still at the bottom, and kept no more than an eye above the gunwale, I would see a big blue summit heaving close above me, yet the coracle would but bounce a little, dance as if on springs, and subside on the other side into the trough as lightly as a bird. I began after a little to grow very bold, and set up to try my skill at paddling, but even a small change in the disposition of the weight will produce violent changes in the behaviour of a coracle, and I had hardly moved before the boat, giving up at once her gentle dancing movement, ran straight down a slope of water so steep that it made me giddy, and struck her nose with a spout of spray deep into the side of the next wave. I was drenched and terrified, and fell instantly back into my old position, whereupon the coracle seemed to find her head again, and led me softly as before among the billows. It was plain she was not to be interfered with, and, at any rate, since I could in no way influence her course, what hope had I of reaching land? I began to be horribly frightened, but I kept my head for all that. First, moving with all care, I gradually bailed out the coracle with my sea-cap. Then, getting my eye once more above the gunwale, I set myself to study how it was she managed to slip so quietly through the rollers. I found each wave, instead of the big, smooth, glossy mountain it looks from the shore, or from a vessel's deck, was for all the world like any range of hills on the dry land, full of peaks and smooth places and valleys. The coracle, left to herself, turning from side to side, threaded, so to speak, her way through these lower parts, and avoided the steep slopes and higher toppling summits of the wave. Well, now, thought I to myself, it is plain I must lie where I am, and not disturb the balance, but it is plain also that I can put the paddle over the side, and from time to time, in smooth paces, give her a shove or two towards land. No sooner thought upon than done. There I lay on my elbows in the most trying attitude, and every now and again gave a weak stroke or two to turn her head to shore. It was very tiring and slow work, yet I did visibly gain ground, and as we drew near the cape of the woods, though I saw I must infallibly miss that point, I had still made some hundred yards of easting. I was, indeed, close in. I could see the cool green tree-tops swaying together in the breeze, and I felt sure I should make the next promontory without fail. It was high time for I now began to be tortured with thirst. The glow of the sun from above, its thousandfold reflection from the waves, the sea-water that fell and dried upon me, caking my very lips with salt, combined to make my throat burn and my brain ache. The sight of the trees so near at hand had almost made me sick with longing, but the current had soon carried me past the point, and, as the next reach of sea opened out, I beheld a sight that changed the nature of my thoughts. Right in front of me, not half a mile away, I beheld the Hispaniola, under sail. 
I made sure, of course, that I should be taken, but I was so distressed for want of water that I scarcely knew whether to be glad or sorry at the thought, and long before I had come to the conclusion, surprise had taken possession of my mind, and I could do nothing but stare and wonder. The Hispaniola was under her mainsail and two jibs, and the beautiful white canvas shone in the sun like snow or silver. When I first sighted her, all her sails were drawing. She was laying a course about northwest, and I presumed the men on board were going round the island on their way back to the anchorage. Presently she began to fetch more and more to the westward, so that I thought they had sighted me and were going about in chase. At last, however, she fell right into the wind's eye, was taken dead aback, and stood there a while, helpless, with her sails shivering. "'Clumsy fellows,' said I. "'They must be still drunk as owls. And I thought how Captain Smollett would have set them skipping.' Meanwhile the schooner gradually fell off, and, filled again upon another tack, sailed swiftly for a minute or so, and brought up once more dead in the wind's eye. Again and again this was repeated, to and fro, up and down, north, south, east, and west, the Hispaniola sailed by swoops and dashes, and, at each repetition, ended as she had begun, with idly flapping canvas. It became plain to me that nobody was steering, and, if so, where were the men? Either they were dead drunk, or had deserted her, I thought, and perhaps if I could get on board I might return the vessel to her captain. The current was bearing coracle and schooner southward at an equal rate. As for the latter's sailing, it was so wild and intermittent, and she hung each time so long in irons, that she certainly gained nothing, if she did not even lose. If I only dared to sit up and paddle, I made sure that I could overhaul her. The scheme had an air of adventure that inspired me and the thought of the water-breaker beside the fore-companion doubled my growing courage. Up I got, was welcomed almost instantly by another cloud of spray, but this time stuck to my purpose, and set myself with all my strength and caution to paddle after the unsteered Hispaniola. Once I shipped a sea so heavy that I had to stop and bail, with my heart fluttering like a bird, but gradually I got into the way of the thing, and guided my coracle among the waves, with only now and then a blow upon her bows, and a dash of foam in my face. I was now gaining rapidly on the schooner. I could see the brass glisten on the tiller as it banged about, and still no soul appeared upon her decks. I could not choose but suppose she was deserted. If not, the men were lying drunk below, where I might batten them down, perhaps, and do what I chose with the ship. For some time she had been doing the worst thing possible for me—standing still. She headed nearly due south, yawing, of course, all the time. Each time she fell off, her sails partly filled, and these brought her in a moment right to the wind again. I have said this was the worst thing possible for me, for helpless as she looked in this situation, with the canvas crackling like cannon and the blocks trundling and banging on the deck, she still continued to run away from me, not only with the speed of the current, but by the whole amount of her leeway, which was naturally great. But now at last I had my chance. 
the breeze fell for some seconds very low, and the current gradually turning her, the Hispaniola revolved slowly around her centre, and at last presented me her stern, with the cabin window still gaping open, and the lamp over the table still burning on into the day. The mainsail hung drooped like a banner. She was stock still but for the current. For the last little while I had even lost, but now, redoubling my efforts, I began once more to overhaul the chase. I was not a hundred yards from her when the wind came again in a clap. She filled on the port tack and was off again, stooping and skimming like a swallow. My first impulse was one of despair, but my second was towards joy. Round she came till she was broadside on to me, round still, till she had covered a half, and then two-thirds, and then three-quarters of the distance that separated us. I could see the waves boiling white under her forefoot. Immensely tall she looked to me from my low station in the coracle. And then, of a sudden, I began to comprehend. I had scarce time to think, scarce time to act, and save myself. I was on the summit of one swell when the schooner came swooping over the next. The bowsprit was over my head. I sprang on my feet and leapt, stamping the coracle under water. With one hand I caught the jibboom, while my foot was lodged between the stay and the brace, and as I still clung there panting, a dull blow told me that the schooner had charged down upon and struck the coracle, and that I was left without retreat on the Hispaniola. End of chapter 24 I Strike the Jolly Roger I had scarce gained a position on the bowsprit when the flying jib flapped and filled on the other tack with a report like a gun. The schooner trembled to her keel under the reverse, but the next moment, the other sails still drawing, the jib flapped back again and hung idle. This had nearly tossed me off into the sea, and now I lost no time, crawled back along the bowsprit, and tumbled head foremost on the deck. I was on the lee side of the forecastle, and the mainsail, which was still drawing, concealed me from a certain portion of the after-deck. Not a soul was to be seen. The planks, which had not been swabbed since the mutiny, bore the print of many feet, and an empty bottle, broken by the neck, tumbled to and fro like a live thing in the scuppers. Suddenly the Hispaniola came right into the wind. The jibs behind me cracked aloud, the rudder slammed too, the whole ship gave a sickening heave and shudder, and at the same moment the main boom swung inboard, the sheet groaning in the blocks, and showed me the lee after-deck. There were the two watchmen, sure enough, red cap on his back, as stiff as a handspike, with his arms stretched out like those of a crucifix, and his teeth showing through his open lips. Israel hands propped against the bulwarks, his chin on his chest, his hands lying open before him on the deck, his face as white under his tan as a tallow candle. For a while the ship kept bucking and sidling like a vicious horse, the sails filling now on one tack, now on another, and the boom swinging to and fro till the mast groaned aloud under the strain. Now and again, too, there would come a cloud of light sprays under the bulwark, and a heavy blow of the ship's bows against the swell, 
So much heavier weather was made of it by this great rigged ship than by my home-made lopsided coracle, now gone to the bottom of the sea. At every jump of the schooner Red Cap slipped to and fro, but, what was ghastly to behold, neither his attitude nor his fixed teeth-disclosing grin was in any way disturbed by this rough usage. At every jump, too, hands appeared still more to sink into himself and settle down upon the deck, his feet sliding ever the farther out, and the whole body canting toward the stern, so that his face became, little by little, hid from me. And at last I could see nothing beyond his ear and the frayed ringlet of one whisker. At the same time I observed, around both of them, splashes of dark blood upon the planks, and began to feel sure that they had killed each other in their drunken wrath. While I was thus looking and wondering, in a calm moment when the ship was still, Israel Hands turned partly round, and, with a low moan, writhed himself back to the position in which I had seen him first. The moan, which told of pain and deadly weakness, and the way in which his jaw hung open, went right to my heart. But when I remembered the talk I had overheard from the apple-barrel, all pity left me. I walked aft until I reached the mainmast. "'Come aboard, Mr. Hands,' I said ironically. He rolled his eyes round heavily, but he was far too gone to express surprise. All he could do was utter one word, Brandy. It occurred to me that there was no time to lose, and dodging the boom as it once more lurched across the deck, I slipped aft and down the companion stairs into the cabin. It was such a scene of confusion as you can hardly fancy. All the lock-fast places had been broken open in quest of the chart. The floor was thick with mud where the ruffians had sat down to drink or consult after wading in the marshes round their camp. The bulkheads, all painted in clear white and beaded round with gilt, bore a pattern of dirty hands. Dozens of empty bottles clinked together in corners to the rolling of the ship. One of the doctor's medical books lay open on the table. Half of the leaves gutted out, I suppose, for pipe-lights. In the midst of all this the lamp still cast a smoky glow, obscure and brown as umber. I went into the cellar. All the barrels were gone, and of the bottles a most surprising number had been drunk out and thrown away. Certainly, since the mutiny began, not a man of them could ever have been sober. Foraging about, I found a bottle with some brandy left, for hands and for myself I routed out some biscuit, some pickled fruits, a great bunch of raisins, and a piece of cheese. With these I came on deck, put down my own stock behind the rudder-head, and, well out of the coxswain's reach, went forward to the water-breaker, and had a good deep drink of water, and then, not until then, gave hands the brandy. He must have drunk a gill before he took the bottle from his mouth. "'Aye,' said he, "'by thunder, but I wanted some of that.' And he sat down already in my corner and began to eat. "'Much hurt?' I asked him. He grunted, or rather, I might say he barked. "'If that doctor was aboard,' he said, "'I'd be right enough in a couple of turns, but I don't have no manner of luck, you see. That's what's the matter with me. And for that swab—' 
"'He's good and dead, he is,' he added, indicating the man with the red cap. "'He weren't no seaman anyhow. And where might you have come from?' "'Well,' said I, "'I have come aboard to take possession of the ship, Mr. Hands, and you'll please regard me as your captain until further notice.' He looked at me sourly enough, but said nothing. Some of the colour had come back into his cheeks, though he still looked very sick, and still continued to slip out and settle down as the ship banged about. "'By the by,' I continued, "'I can't have these colours, Mr. Hands, and by your leave I'll strike em. Better none than these.' And, again dodging the boom, I ran to the colour lines, and hauled down their cursed black flag, and chucked it overboard. "'God save the King!' said I, waving my cap and there's an end to Captain Silver." He watched me keenly and slyly, his chin all the while on his breast. "'I reckon,' he said at last, "'I reckon, Captain Hawkins, you'll kind of want to get ashore now. Suppose we talks?' "'Why, yes,' says I, "'with all my heart, Mr. Hands, say on.' And I went back to my meal with a good appetite. "'This man,' he began, nodding feebly at the corpse. "'O'Brien was his name. A rank islander. This man and me got the canvas on her, meaning for to sail her back. Well, he's dead now, he is, as dead as bilge. And who's to sail this ship, I don't see? Without, I'll give you a hint, you ain't that man, as far as I can tell. Now, look here.' You gives me food and drink, and an old scarf or handkerchief, to tie my wound up, you do, and I'll tell you how to sail her. And that's about square all round, I take it. I'll tell you one thing, says I. I'm not going back to Captain Kidd's anchorage. I mean to get into North Inlet, and beach her quietly there. To be sure you did, he cried. Why, I ain't sich an infernal lubber after all. I can see, can't I? I've tried my fling, I have, and I've lost, and it's you as the wind of me. North Inlet? Why, I haven't no choice, not I. I'd a help you sail her up to execution dock, by thunder, so I would. Well, as it seemed to me, there was some sense in this. We struck our bargain on the spot. In three minutes I had the Hispaniola sailing easily before the wind along the coast of Treasure Island, with good hopes of turning the northern point ere noon, and beating down again as far as North Inlet before high water, when we might beach her safely, and wait until the subsiding tide permitted us to land. Then I lashed the tiller, and went below to my own chest, where I got a soft silk handkerchief of my mother's. With this, and with my aid, hands bound up the great bleeding stab he had received in the thigh, and after he had eaten a little, and had a swallow or two more of the brandy, he began to pick up visibly, sat straighter up, spoke louder and clearer, and looked in every way another man. The breeze served us admirably. We skimmed before it like a bird, the coast of the island flashing by, and the view changing every minute. Soon we were past the highlands, and bowling beside low sandy country, sparsely dotted with dwarf pines, and soon we were beyond that again, and had turned the corner of the rocky hill that ends the island on the north. 
I was greatly elated with my new command, and pleased with the bright sunshiny weather, and these different prospects of the coast. I now had plenty of water and good things to eat, and my conscience, which had smitten me hard for my desertion, was quieted by the great conquest I had made. I should, I think, have had nothing left me to desire but for the eyes of the coxswain as they followed me derisively about the deck, and the odd smile that appeared continually on his face. It was a smile that had in it something both of pain and weakness, a haggard old man's smile. But there was, besides that, a grain of derision, a shadow of treachery in his expression as he craftily watched and watched and watched me at my work. End of chapter 25 Chapter 26 Israel Hands The wind, serving us to a desire, now hauled into the west. We could run so much easier from the northeast corner of the island to the mouth of the north inlet. Only, as we had no power to anchor, and dared not beach her until the tide had flowed a good deal farther, time hung on our hands. The coxswain told me how to lay the ship too. After a good many trials I succeeded, and we both sat in silence over another meal. "'Cap'n,' said he at length, with that same uncomfortable smile, "'here's my old shipmate O'Brien. Suppose you was to heave him overboard. I ain't particular as a rule, and I don't take no blame for settling his hash, but I don't reckon him ornamental now, do you? I'm not strong enough, and I don't like the job, and there he lies for me, said I. Here's an unlucky ship, the Hispaniola, Jim, he went on, blinking. There's a power of men been killed on this Hispaniola, a sight of poor seamen dead and gone since you and me took this ship to Bristol. I never seen such dirty luck, not I. There was this here O'Brien now. He's dead, ain't he? Well, now, I'm no scholar, and you're a lad as can read and figure. And, to put it straight, do you take it as a dead man is dead for good, or do he come alive again? You can kill the body, Mr. Hands, but not the spirit. You must know that already, I replied. O'Brien there is in another world, and may be watching us. Ah, says he, well, that's unfortunate. Appears as if killing parties was a waste of time. Howsomever, spirits don't reckon for much by what I've seen. I'll chance it with the spirits, Jim. And now you spoke up free, and I'll take it kind if you'll step down into that there cabin and get me a, well, a shiver my timbers, I can't hit the name on't. "'Well, you can get me a bottle of wine, Jim. "'This here brandy's too strong for my head.' "'Now the coxswain's hesitation seemed to be unnatural, "'and as for the notion of his preferring wine to brandy, "'I entirely disbelieved it. "'The whole story was a pretext. "'He wanted me to leave the deck. "'So much was plain, but with what purpose I could in no way imagine.' His eyes never met mine, and they kept wandering to and fro, up and down, now with a look to the sky, now with a flitting glance upon the dead O'Brien. 
All the time he kept smiling and putting his tongue out in a most guilty, embarrassed manner, so that a child could have told that he was bent on some deception. I was prompt with my answer, however, for I saw where my advantage lay, and that, with a fellow so densely stupid, I could easily conceal my suspicions to the end. "'Some wine?' I said. "'Far better. Will you have white or red?' "'Well, I reckon it's about the blessed same to me, shipmate,' he replied. "'So it's strong, and plenty of it. What's the odds?' "'All right,' I answered. "'I'll bring you port, Mr. Hands, but I'll have to dig for it.' And with that I scuttled down the companion with all the noise I could, slipped off my shoes, ran quietly along the sparred gallery, mounted the forecastle ladder, and popped my head out of the fore-companion. I knew he would not expect to see me there, yet I took every precaution possible, and certainly the worst of my suspicions proved too true. He had risen from his position to his hands and knees, and though his leg obviously hurt him pretty sharply when he moved, for I could hear him stifle a groan, yet it was at a good rattling rate that he trailed himself across the deck. In half a minute he had reached the port scuppers, and picked up a coil of rope with a long knife or rather a short dirk, discoloured to the hilt with blood. He looked upon it for a moment, thrusting forth his under jaw, tried the point upon his hand, and then hastily concealing it in the bosom of his jacket, trundled back again into his old place against the bulwark. This was all that I required to know. Israel could move about. He was now armed and if he had been at so much trouble to get rid of me, it was plain that I was meant to be the victim. What would he do afterward? Whether he would try to crawl right across the island from North Inlet to the camp among the swamps, or whether he would fire Long Tom, trusting that his own comrades might first come to help him, was, of course, more than I could say. Yet I felt sure that I could trust him in one point— since in that our interests jumped together, and that was the disposition of the schooner. We both desired to have her stranded safe enough, in a sheltered place, so that when the time came she could be got off again, with as little labour and danger as might be, and until that was done I considered that my life would certainly be spared. While I was thus turning the business over in my mind I had not been idle with my body. I had stolen back to the cabin, slipped once more into my shoes, and laid my hand at random on a bottle of wine, and now, with this for an excuse, I made my reappearance on the deck. Hands lay as I had left him, all fallen together in a bundle, and with his eyelids lowered, as though he were too weak to bear the light. He looked up, however, at my coming, knocked the neck off the bottle like a man who had done the same thing often, and took a good swig, with his favourite toast of Here's luck. Then he lay quiet for a little, and then, pulling out a stick of tobacco, begged me to cut him a quid. Cut me a junk of that, says he, for I haven't no knife, and hardly the strength enough, so be as I had. Ah, oh, Jim, Jim, I reckon I've missed stays. Cut me a quid as likely to be the last, lad, for I'm for my long home and no mistake. "'Well,' said I, "'I'll cut you some tobacco, but if I was you and thought myself so badly, I would go to my prayers like a Christian man.' "'Why,' said he, 
"'Now you tell me why.' "'Why?' I cried. "'You were asking me just now about the dead. You've broken your trust. You've lived in sin and lies and blood. There's a man you killed lying at your feet this very moment, and you asked me why? For God's mercy, Mr. Hands, that's why.' I spoke with a little heat, thinking of the bloody dirk he had hidden in his pocket, and designed in his ill thoughts to end me with. He, for his part, took a great draught of the wine, and spoke with the most unusual solemnity. "'For thirty year,' he said, "'I've sailed the seas and seen good and bad, better and worse, fair weather and foul, provisions running out, knives going, and what not. Well, now I tell you, I never seen good come out of goodness yet. Him as strikes first is my fancy. Dead men don't bite. Them's my views. Amen. So be it. And now you look here, he added, suddenly changing his tone. We've had enough of this foolery. The tide's made good enough by now. You just take my orders, Captain Hawkins, and we'll sail slap in and be done with it. All told, we had scarce two miles to run, but the navigation was delicate. The entrance to this northern anchorage was not only narrow and shoal, but lay east and west, so that the schooner must be nicely handled to be got in. I think I was a good prompt subaltern, and I am sure that Hans was an excellent pilot, for we went about and about, and dodged in, shaving the banks, with a certainty and a neatness that were a pleasure to behold. Scarcely had we passed the head before the land closed around us. The shores of North Inlet were as thickly wooded as those of the southern anchorage, but the space was longer and narrower, and more like what in truth it was the estuary of a river. Right before us, at the southern end, we saw the wreck of a ship in the last stages of dilapidation. It had been a great vessel of three masts, but had lain so long exposed to the injuries of the weather that it was hung about with great webs of dripping seaweed, and on the decks of it shore bushes had taken root, and now flourished thick with flowers. It was a sad sight, but it showed us that the anchorage was calm. "'Now,' said Hans, "'look there. There's a pet bit for to beach a ship in. Fine flat sand, never a cat's paw, trees all around of it and flowers are blowing like a garden on that old ship. "'And once beached?' I inquired. "'How shall we get her off again?' "'Why so?' he replied. "'You take a line ashore there on the other side at low water, take a turn about one of them big pines, bring it back, take a turn around the capstan, and lie to for the tide. Come high water, all hands take a pull upon the line, and off she comes as sweet as nature. And now, boy, you stand by. We've hit the bit now, and she's too much way on her. Starboard a little. So, steady, starboard. Larboard a little. Steady, steady. So he issued his commands, which I breathlessly obeyed, till, all of a sudden, he cried, Now, my hearty, laugh! And I put the helm hard up and the Hispaniola swung round rapidly, and ran stem-on for the low wooded shore. 
The excitement of these last manoeuvres had somewhat interfered with the watch I had kept hitherto sharply enough upon the coxswain. Even then I was still so much interested, waiting for the ship to touch, that I had quite forgotten the peril that hung over my head, and stood craning over the starboard bulwarks, and watching the ripples spreading wide before the bows. I might have fallen without a struggle for my life, had not a sudden disquietude seized upon me, and made me turn my head. Perhaps I had heard a creak, or seen his shadow moving with the tail of my eye. Perhaps it was an instinct, like a cat's. But sure enough, when I looked round, there was Hans, already half-way toward me, with the dirk in his right hand. We must both have cried out aloud when our eyes met. But while mine was the shrill cry of terror, his was a roar of fury like a charging bull's. At the same instant he threw himself forward, and I leapt sideways toward the bows. As I did so I let go of the tiller, which sprung sharp to leeward, and I think this saved my life, for it struck hands across the chest, and stopped him for the moment dead. Before he could recover I was safe out of the corner where he had me trapped, with all the deck to dodge about. Just forward of the mainmast I stopped, drew a pistol from my pocket, took a cool aim, though he had already turned and was once more coming directly after me, and drew the trigger. The hammer fell, but there followed neither flash nor sound. The priming was useless with sea-water. I cursed myself for my neglect. Why had I not, long before, reprimed and reloaded my only weapons? Then I should not have been as now, a mere fleeing sheep before this butcher. Wounded as he was, it was wonderful how fast he could move, his grizzled hair tumbling over his face, and his face itself as red as a red ensign with his haste and fury. I had no time to try my other pistol, nor indeed much inclination, for I was sure it would be useless. One thing I saw plainly, I must not simply retreat before him, or he would speedily hold me boxed in the bows, as a moment since he had so neatly boxed me in the stern. Once so caught, and nine or ten inches of the blood-stained dirk would be my last experience on this side of eternity. I placed my palms against the mainmast, which was of a goodish bigness, and waited every nerve upon the stretch. Seeing that I meant to dodge, he also paused, and a moment or two passed in feints on his part and corresponding movements upon mine. It was such a game as I had often played at home, about the rocks of Blackhill Cove, but never before, you may be sure, with such a wildly beating heart as now. Still, as I say it, it was a boy's game, and I thought I could hold my own at it against an elderly seaman with a wounded thigh. Indeed, my courage had began to rise so high that I allowed myself a few darting thoughts on what would be the end of the affair and while I saw certainly that I could spin it out for long, I saw no hope in any ultimate escape. Well, while things stood thus, suddenly the Hispaniola struck, staggered, ground for an instant in the sand, and then, swift as a blow, canted over to the port side, till the deck stood at an angle of forty-five degrees, and about a puncheon of water splashed into the scupper-holes, and lay in a pool between the deck and the bulwark. We were both of us capsized in a second, and both of us rolled almost together into the scuppers, 
the dead red cap with his arms still spread out, tumbling stiffly after us. So near were we indeed that my head came against the coxswain's foot with a crack that made my teeth rattle. Blow and all, I was the first afoot again, for hands had got involved with the dead body. The sudden canting of the ship had made the deck no place for running on. I had found some new way of escape, and that upon the instant, for my foe was almost touching me. Quick as thought, I sprang into the mizzen shrouds, rattled up hand over hand, and did not draw a breath till I was seated on the cross-trees. I had been saved by being prompt. The dirk had struck not half a foot below me as I pursued my upward flight, and there stood Israel Hands with his mouth open and his face upturned to mine, a perfect statue of surprise and disappointment. Now that I had a moment to myself, I lost no time in changing the priming of my pistol, and then, having one ready for service, and to make assurance doubly sure, I proceeded to draw the load of the other, and recharge it afresh from the beginning. My new employment struck hands all of a heap. He began to see the dice going against him, and, after an obvious hesitation, he also hauled himself heavily into the shrouds, and, with the dirk in his teeth, began slowly and painfully to mount. It cost him no end of time and groans to haul his wounded leg behind him, and I had quietly finished my arrangements before he was much more than a third of the way up. Then, with a pistol in either hand, I addressed him. "'One more step, Mr. Hands,' said I, "'and I'll blow your brains out. Dead men don't bite, you know,' I added, with a chuckle. He stopped instantly. I could see by the workings of his face that he was trying to think, and the process was so slow and laborious that, in my new-found security, I laughed out loud. At last, with a swallow or two, he spoke, his face still wearing the same expression of extreme perplexity. In order to speak he had to take the dagger from his mouth, but, in all else, he remained unmoved. "'Jim,' says he, "'I reckon we're fouled, you and me, and we'll have to sign articles. I'd have had you but for that there lurch, but I don't have no luck, not I.' and I reckon I'll have to strike, which comes hard, you see, for a master mariner to a ship's yunker like you, Jim." I was drinking in his words and smiling away, as conceited as a cock upon a walk, when all in a breath back went his right hand over his shoulder. Something sang like an arrow through the air. I felt a blow, and then a sharp pang, and there I was, pinned by the shoulder to the mast. In the horrid pain and surprise of the moment, I scarce can say it was by my own volition, and I am sure it was without a conscious aim. Both of my pistols went off, and both escaped out of my hands. They did not fall alone. With a choked cry, the coxswain loosed his grasp upon the shrouds, and plunged head first into the water. End of chapter 26 So, remember when I told you that Israel Hands was a real pirate? And Israel Hands did not die like this. Israel Hands died on the land after having been arrested and uh, tried and all of that. So, clearly, Robert Louis Stevenson taking poetic license.
that's just fine because this was awesome. Wow. Jim, right? I mean, just just look at the number of times that kid ducked the boom as it was swinging around on this ship that was being bandied about like the ghost ship in Rime of the Ancient Mariner. I mean, really, this kid knocked it out of the park. I was so impressed with Jim. First, him figuring out what was going on, figuring out how to get on the ship, figuring out that Israel Hands wasn't actually dead, figuring out that Israel Hands probably didn't mean him any good, and so he has to go downstairs, take off his shoes, and spy on Israel Hands. I mean, everything Jim did in these three chapters was just spectacular. And some of our male listeners are going to need to weigh in on this, I think. 206-350-1642. Because I know that for many of us, the female listeners slash readers in the crew, reading characters like Anne in Anne of Green Cables, especially if you are young and a clever girl, makes you feel like you're not so alone in the world. Very important. Here we have a young boy. Now, I know that young male protagonists in fiction are not news, but it struck me as I was listening to this again that Jim, especially in these chapters, being a particularly clever young man and a good one, you know, he tries to do the right thing, which doesn't mean he's perfect, but he's, he's making a good go of it. He would be the kind of clever mind that I think had I been a young male person, I would have liked to have found solidarity with. I didn't read this when I was young, and I didn't read this when I was a young boy, since I wasn't ever. But I'm curious if that same kind of imaginary camaraderie, the the really important kind of foundational psychological connections that you make when you're a kid to characters in books, if Jim was one of those guys who you could align yourself with if you were young male and reading this book. I don't know. It just struck me. He's one that I'd want to have as a friend (laughs) if I were out and about and, you know, in danger. And I was 13 and I was only surrounded by other 13 year olds. Jim's on my side. I'm taking him with me. I also loved that the slimy monsters were sea lions. That was, boy, was that Robert Louis Stevenson saying, hey, I've seen these things. (laughs) They're amazing looking. Look it up. Because instead of it being Tharby monsters, it's, no, there were sea lions. That's all. I also loved Jim showing up on the ship, striking the Jolly Roger and telling Israel Hands, you'll look at me as your captain. (laughs) Like, dude, back off. I got this. Oh, Good moment. Good moment for Jim. And an interesting conversation about prayer and praying and dying. And two really good lines, dead men don't bite. And I've never seen good come of goodness. That last one we've seen show up in different forms in different places, but all around the same era from mid to late Victorian. Whether it's the easiest one to, for me to pull back on is Mrs. Jellybee in Bleak House, where she would have been the embodiment of goodness, someone who was raising money to send out with missionaries to do good things for others, capital G, capital O. 
And yet, we could tell that her goodness, I'm using air quotes, wasn't really all that good and didn't do a whole lot of good. But boy, was it goodness. I like that that kind of got touched on again here, especially as we move towards the final parts of the book. I think that that sentiment, that philosophy, should probably hang around at the back of our brains. And with that, I leave you. Have a great one. I will talk to you soon. Take care. Bye. If you like what you heard, please leave us a review at iTunes or like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter or any one of a million different places that Craftlet wound up over the last 13 years. For more information on Craftlet, you can visit craftlit.com and subscribe via your favorite podcast app or download the Craftlet app so you can get all of your episodes right there in your hand, all in one place without having to hassle with anything else. So you can be sure not to miss any of Treasure Island. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on. Thanks. Thanks.